This program was made possible with support from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. If you or someone you know is over 50 years old and has a smoking history, ask a doctor about a low-dose CT scan. It will save a life. Once the diagnosis comes, it can be devastating, but you need to sit back and take a breath, and then you need to plan your way forward. I said to my oncologist, I know I did this to myself. He said, no one can prove that. You don't know that for sure. Lung cancer was already the stepchild of the cancer world, and then here we were, lagging behind. Like, what about us? Where's our voice? So the squeakiest wheel gets the money. And we just need to make small cell a squeaky wheel and increase funding. Finding your voice while navigating a cancer diagnosis is not always easy, but self-advocacy can be a game changer. Asking questions, reporting all symptoms, and seeking a second opinion can drastically change the course of a patient's journey and has potential to impact other patients as well. In this Caregiver Life Hacks podcast series, we're focusing on small cell lung cancer patients and their caregivers. I'm Alura Nanos, your host for this series. I'm a lawyer, a mom, and I'm also a caregiver. Lung cancer affects more than 200,000 people in the United States each year and an estimated 2.3 million people worldwide. About 10 to 15% of people with lung cancer have a type called small cell lung cancer or SCLC, and that's what we're focusing on today. In our last episode, we met three patients, Montessa Lee, Rayanne Lehman, and Maida Mangiamelli. We also spoke to their caregivers who shared their insights and wisdom from their front row seats caring for someone with SCLC. For many decades, research, funding, and information about small cell lung cancer remained stagnant. And while there is still no cure for small cell lung cancer, there is hope. Montessa, Rayanne, and Maida all consider themselves lung cancer success stories, and they're here to share those stories with us. Montessa Lee was just 28 years old when she was diagnosed in 2006. Since then, she has been an advocate for SCLC. In that time, she has witnessed a lot of changes, but at the time of diagnosis, the statistics were not great. When you were first diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, what did you know about it? I I had no idea what the stats were, what the prognosis was, until I looked it up on the internet. And what did you find? While the results were staggering, I saw that 30 years, the needle had not moved much for lung cancer, period. I found that there were two categories, two broad categories, non-small cell and small cell. Non-small cells could be broken up at that time into two different categories. When you say that the needle hadn't moved in 30 years, what do you mean? So the same treatment that had happened 30 years ago was still the same treatment that research hadn't progressed enough. So if you think about it as a one-room schoolhouse, that was what it was like for the cancer care. Do you now have an understanding of why small cell lung cancer was still in that one-room schoolhouse? It wasn't until a couple of years ago that somebody explained to me more of the biology of small cell lung cancer and why some of the treatments that work for non-small cell don't work for small cell lung cancer. And in my eyes, that's when I viewed it. It's almost a totally different disease. You know, I always bring it back to what I know about education. So if we think about learning, the learning profile is a fingerprint then we should be treating these cancers as varied as your fingertip, you know, so individualized treatment. 
Do you think that there's anything that has gotten in the way of making individualized treatment a priority? There is a um, a stigma definitely associated with lung cancer, which is smoking. It's for small cell. The stigma is deeper because they'll they'll say that they're like, oh, it's almost eighty percent caused by smoking. Here, I was a non-smoker. Do you think the attitude is small cell lung cancer doesn't need us because people can just stop smoking and that will fix the problem? That is something they always say, turn on the TV, you see a lot of smoking cessation, but anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. And, and I think when people ask me that question, they asked it because they, like the first thing they would say, did you smoke? And I think it's because they think they're safe. Yeah. I think it is human nature that when mm-hmm. we hear of illness, tragedy, really sort of any bad thing, mm-hmm. that the first thing we do is we distance ourselves from it. Yes. And mm-hmm. we say, here's a reason why I don't have to worry about that, or here's why that might not happen to me. Mm-hmm. Because there is a provable link between smoking and lung cancer, the, the easy thing is to say, well, I don't smoke, so therefore it's not something I have to worry about. You've always been a non-smoker? Yes. When I went to one of my advocacy trainings, some breast cancer people from, um, I think it was Susan B. Komen organization came in and they said it best. They said, if somebody has a heart attack, do you ask them how many times they went through the drive-thru at McDonald's? And the answer is no, we don't ask that question. Interestingly, as a non-smoker, Montessa was very aware of the stigma attached to lung cancer, while Maida Mangiamelli, a lifelong smoker, had a very different experience. I've heard people talk about the stigma attached to smoking. Well, you, you smoke. You, you know, of course you're going to get lung cancer. You gave it to yourself. You did it to yourself. And I smoked for most of my life. And when I found out I had cancer two months after quitting smoking, I said to my oncologist, I know I did this to myself. He said, no one can prove that. You don't know that for sure. So I've never had to deal with anyone in my life, professionals or friends or family, telling me I did it to myself, I should blame myself. And that's huge. Did you expect that either your doctor or other people in your life would make you feel that contracting cancer was your fault? Yeah, I didn't expect my doctor. I did expect some people in my life, especially a couple of friends, to act like that, to behave that way toward me. Well, you know, what did you expect? And I just got together with a few friends that I haven't seen for a while, especially the woman I expected to blame me for my own situation recently. And I thanked them because she didn't act like that. And I said, you guys don't understand that most people in my situation are blamed for giving it to themselves. They said, if you have lungs, you could get lung cancer. And I never thought of it that way before. That, that helps a lot. How does it help to take away that blame and that shame my sister said she remembers me years ago saying, well, I'm, you know, I know I'm going to end up with lung cancer. And that's okay. I don't remember saying that, but, you know, I, I believe her. And I'm sure it was at a period in my life when I was very depressed about something. It just lifts a little bit off your shoulders when you think about the fact it can be right on in your basement. It can be outside influences. It can be, it can be all kinds of things that gives you lung cancer. It sounds like, you know, maybe lifting that that extra weight off your shoulders at a time when you really need it most. Exactly. Yes. The truth is that going through the treatments is hell. And yet I know I had it easier than most. And why is that? Because I never had a lot of pain. 
A lot of people with lung cancer have a lot of pain. I didn't have pain. I quit smoking, and within a couple of weeks, I was coughing like a mania, went to an immediate care center just to get a cough, some kind of cough medicine, and that doctor said, you need to go get a chest x-ray. And a couple of days later, he, he called me, this man I didn't know, and said, well, you need to see your primary care because you, you have lung cancer. And I, I, that was shocking. Someone I'd seen once in my life, he could have been more delicate. He could have said, I suspect something. He didn't. He just said, you have lung cancer. Go see your doctor. Rayanne Lehman was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer in 2020. She was also a smoker, but quit 30 years ago. Her husband, Dennis, is still a smoker. He's tried to quit several times through the years. He talked with us about that process. I still smoke. You do? Ever since I was in college. And, and Rayanne's diagnosis didn't stop you from smoking in any way? I'm addicted. Did you consider stopping smoking, just out of curiosity? I've tried a number of times, and uh, she doesn't really want me to either because I become a bear. Uh-huh. It's, it's my calming activity. Sure. And I imagine that right now going through this, you need a calming activity more than ever. And you know, my primary care physician, uh, my cardiologist, all of those people that I go to, they all know that I smoke and they know I'm not going to give it up. I'm 76. Realistically, I know I'm on the downhill side of the mountain and I'm going to enjoy myself. There's so many environmental factors. Uh, I'm a prime example of all the exposures. And like I say, I've been fortunate that I guess I have good genes. It is true that genetics can play a role in contributing to lung cancer, as well as many environmental factors. While smoking is the number one risk factor for lung cancer, recent research shows the rates of lung cancer in people who have never smoked are steadily climbing. So, Rayanne, Dennis mentioned that you were a smoker and that you had quit smoking 30 years ago. I'm really interested in whether the fact that you have not been a smoker for decades impacted how you felt about the diagnosis. Did it feel surprising or unfair? It absolutely did. There's some anger there because at the time that I quit, and it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, when they started with the original diagnosis, our original connection between cancer and smoking, we were both denial. Now I realize that it's the truth. But yeah, I just couldn't believe that I did this. I gave up cigarettes and look where I am now. Can you describe what, what it seems like the world thinks about smokers and can lung cancer? I've known for quite a few years that it's considered dirty and you're considered weak. I've known that and I, and I can tell you that it is such a horrible addiction, such a horrible addiction. I try not to be judgmental about smokers. It used to be, you know, you, ate, you smoked in restaurants, you smoked at work. Now you, you go outside and you smoke a cigarette. If there's somebody smoking right near the door, you look at them and you say, do you have to do it here? Go away. I really feel sorry for people that are still addicted to smoking, and I wish they could quit, but it is a personal decision, and I decided once I had, I would never be one of these ex-smokers that drives people crazy with reasons why you shouldn't smoke. Yeah, Dennis mentioned to me that he has been a smoker for a long time and that he is still a smoker. Yes. And um, 
that seemed very surprising to me, but he also mentioned that you're extraordinarily understanding about it and that, you know, someone might think that it would make you angry that he's still a smoker, but it doesn't at all sound like that's your attitude. There's a part of it that there's some anger there because I love him and I don't want him to be put in this condition. But I also realized that he could quit today and be diagnosed two years with lung cancer. It's very hard for him. He has attempted many, many times to quit, and it's very hard for him. So he doesn't smoke in the house. He doesn't smoke in the car. He doesn't smoke in the motorhome. He doesn't smoke around me. And as long as he keeps it that way, I'm okay. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. It may be surprising to learn that more women will die from lung cancer than from breast cancer. And that discrepancy is in large part due to the enormous amount of funding devoted to breast cancer research. Research and advocacy for research funding can drastically change outcomes. My initial look when I saw the that lung cancer period, you know, in 2006 was lacking funding. We used to have a chart that was called the death chart. And so it showed like a little person relative to funding. And so like if a cancer had X amount of deaths, you know, they would have so much funding. And then lung cancer had a minute level of funding, even though it was the leading cancer killer. More people than breast, prostate and colon combined. And I'm like, this is outrageous. You know, something has to be done. And what about for yourself, though? What about for your own personal diagnosis? What was your kind of emotional reaction? I still looked at it from a holistic point. So I was like, wow, look, this needle hasn't moved. Then I got involved in the advocacy world. And I saw poster study after poster study for non-small cell, non-small cell, non-small cell. And I'm like, what about small cell? What about me? Where's our voice? I saw a picture of myself as I'm a fighter for the underdog. That's why I went into special education. That's why I do my mission trips, because I have to give a voice to the voiceless. And and we're often left behind. Even in 2006, we didn't have a whole big realm of the advocacy role of survivors like they had for breast cancer. That has changed, you know, non-small cell. We have oncogene groups now. I was like, we have to provide a voice. Through your years of advocacy, did you also find or have you learned about any other inequities? I was really interested in age, you know, like I was like, how could they just pass me by because I was 28 years old, otherwise a healthy person. And so I was looking at disparities there. You have a bias, you know, you have an implicit bias of what a patient should look like coming in with small cell lung cancer or lung cancer period. And I didn't fit the profile. Doctors have to understand some of these implicit biases, right? Mm -hmm. So I hit that. It affects African-American black more. And so here I am again in that pool. Inevitably, what they should have done was simply given me an x-ray. That would have found the mass because by then I already had pain. I was like, okay, I can't go back looking for answers. All I could do now is advocate for these things. As you're talking about this, uh, what a doctor could have done, what a doctor 
may have missed or and and why they miss it because you just don't fit the profile and you would be an unusual patient from my own perspective you know lawyers look at stuff like that to say where does negligence lie what is industry standard what should it be and if that's really the case something as simple as an x-ray could have potentially saved a person's life I mean, I still wouldn't have fit the guidelines for screening because it does involve smoking history, but I'm promoting people. Like my dad is a retired Marine. He's a, he's a veteran. So I'm like, dad, did you get your CT scans? He's like, yeah. He tells me, yes, I don't know if he really does it, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All you can do is tell them to do it, right? You can't do it. That's why it's called advocacy and not like doing it for them, <laughs> right? Studies show that Black Americans with lung cancer were 15% less likely to be diagnosed early, 19% less likely to receive surgical treatment, 10% more likely not to receive any treatment, and 12% less likely to survive five years compared to white Americans. People of color who are diagnosed with lung cancer face worse outcomes compared to white Americans. Montessa helped us understand the reason behind these disparities. So would you talk to us a little bit about what those disparities look like and what your thoughts are about what might help. Yes. So sometimes, you know, they, they don't have the same treatment options or they're not giving any, any treatment. They have insurance issues. Also, I found that sometimes they're going to their local hospital where you're not receiving the same treatment options as you would if for people who can go to a large institution that is associated with a university. We look back as far as the Tuskegee experiment, we look at the Henrietta Lacks story, there is a distrust, especially with older African-Americans, with some of the medical community that they don't want to be treated like a guinea pig. And so we have to educate not only the patients, but when we go back to that implicit bias, how do we talk to our healthcare professionals to talk to diverse people? I even remember going to an advocacy event, even talking about some people in the Native American community and having these same disparities. So how do we get this people of color group up to the same level of treatment that white Americans get? Did you feel at all during your journey that being a Black woman affected your own treatment in any way or how you were perceived or anything like that? Not during the treatment, but since then and after I learned the disparities and, and talking to other people. Now, I did have an African-American doctor. Now, I have thought about that. I was and that was older. And, and I think back, you know, the what if question. Yeah. What would my care have looked like if I got someone else? Would they have told me in 2006? Would it look like this? You have lung cancer. Go home and get your affairs in order. Right. Instead of the hope message that I got. Cultures are different, you know, back to that culture, culture responsive teaching practices, which part of that is exploring your own implicit bias. You know, there's some people that religions are, are, you know, don't believe in blood transfusions. So do you understand how to talk to a patient that their culture is different than what you believe? I remember my family would come in, they were like, well, how many people do you have in here? You know, when I'm in the hospital, but that my extended family, that is part of African-American culture. I have an extended family who's going to come into the hospital. More than half of the 31 million uninsured Americans are people of color, and research is clear that having health coverage impacts people's medical care and ultimately their health outcomes. Addressing racial disparities in health care coverage is critical to addressing racial disparities in lung cancer care. And there are disparities even among different kinds of lung cancer. Part of Rayanne's advocacy is to work to fill that gap. I'm a little bit disappointed because non-small cell lung cancer, which accounts for 85% of the lung cancers, gets a lot of funding. 
So the squeakiest wheel gets the money. And we just need to make small cell a squeaky wheel and increase funding. Why do you think that small cell doesn't get as much funding as non-small cell? Small cell lung cancer, it never goes away. And that is something that was a really hard pill to swallow because I believe in medicine. And recently I saw something that it was referred to as the whack-a-mole disease because you beat it back and it comes back either in the same place or a different place. And that's what my experience has been. That's basically what I feel is the most important thing about small cell lung cancer that people have to realize that there is no cure. But that doesn't mean that patients with small cell lung cancer aren't worthy of good treatment and aren't worthy of research to find out if there is something, if there is something that can prolong the life of these people. Do you think that the perception is that um, because there is no cure for small cell lung cancer, that it makes it not worthy of uh, additional research? I think you're right about that. I think there is, well, they're not going to live long anyways, so we're not going to devote a lot of time to it. From a different standpoint, when you look at researchers and they're opening up clinical trials for people with small cell lung cancer, if a clinical trial takes three years and the typical life expectancy is less than a year, your patients, your participants in the clinical trial may not make it to three years. It makes it very hard to study that way. If you had a piece of advice to give to another person with small cell lung cancer or another caregiver for someone with small cell lung cancer, what would you suggest? First thing I do is sit back and take a deep, deep breath. Once a diagnosis comes, it can be devastating, but you need to sit back and take a breath, and then you need to plan your way forward. You need to seek good medical care and seek other people that are having the same diagnosis, that are going through the same thing. I have a national group that I belong to, it's really nice to have people that are on this Zoom meeting that are going through the same thing, who can encourage you, who can offer little tips maybe. We're not seeking medical advice from each other. We're just looking for support. And that's why I'm really trying very hard to get some kind of local support group because there's nothing around here. And I'm trying to hopefully by the beginning of the year, have something established so we can have a local group who will meet monthly and share experiences and have educational programs, things that will help us understand where we are and how we can move forward. What would you tell someone to help them feel hopeful or empowered to take on small cell lung cancer? You have to understand that you have the right to the knowledge about this disease. You should be going into your oncologist appointments with a list of questions. And you should be asking those questions and having them relayed, the answers relayed in a manner in which you can understand. You have to be your own advocate because the professions are involved with so many different patients. But it has helped me to put it down on paper. It has helped me tremendously to put it down on paper. And what about for patients who have just been diagnosed? I think new patients have to take a little bit of time, come to grips with it, develop your plan, and become your advocate. 
and try and get involved with other people who can share your responsibilities. And by all means, get a good caregiver. So the word that kept coming back over and over over both of your interviews was just how fortunate you both feel. I would love for you to just end by telling me, what is the thing that you feel most fortunate about? Having Dennis. So Dennis, what would you say to someone who has just become a caregiver for someone with small cell lung cancer? What kind of wisdom and advice could you share with that person? Based on our experience, I'd say do what the oncology team tells you. I mean, Rian freely admits she's exceeded her life expectation when this was diagnosed. The other thing I would say is patience. You know, it's frustrating at times. And I know Rian gets frustrated because sometimes she'll, she'll want to say something or she's thinking of something and she can't quite develop it to the point where she can express it correctly. She wants to say one thing, but she says something else. Uh, that's frustrating because sometimes I know what she means. Other times she'll tell me something and then later it will, it will be, no, that's not what she told me. The patient part of it, and, I, and I'm a bad one to speak because I'm not a very patient person. What do you do to sort of recharge your, your patient's bank? If I find I'm getting frustrated, I'll just walk away for a little bit. You know, and, you know, they say count to 10. Now, I just walk away. That's when I smoke a cigarette outside. And, and that's my stress reliever, you know. And I realize it's not good for my health, but I made it this far. I'm going to enjoy the rest. Absolutely. I get it. There is also support to be found outside of family members. Local resources are often available through community organizations and churches. Even if you don't belong to a church or a faith organization, many of them provide help to anyone who asks. You might remember Reverend Belinda Gentry from the first episode. Her church provided extensive care for Montessa. They have a huge network of volunteers and care providers. She told us about some of the services they offer. We care for a lot of people who are going through different kinds of treatment. It's like compassionate care. It's so that you know that you are never alone. You know that there is somebody that you can call and say, hey, I need help. It may not be a button that you push, but you pick up that phone and uh, we will come running. We have people who minister to people in hospice people who are going through cancer treatments. We just want people to feel connected, feel that family environment, and know that there are people who care and will help them in any way possible. Support groups are also available online and in person for both patients and caregivers. Maida spoke about the importance of her support group in her life. The other thing that's helped me enormously, and I really want to talk about this briefly, is a Facebook group. I don't even know how I found them or they found me. It's Live Lung, L-I-V-E-L-U-N-G dot org. We're all over the place. We're all over the country. And we meet on Zoom once a month. And they have a group that's primarily small cell lung cancer, like me, patients. And then a group that's non-small cell lung cancer patients, although everyone can take part in whatever they want. These people are amazing. So when I'm really feeling kind of down, I know that when I have a meeting coming up, that I'm going to be lifted up. And we all share good and bad. And it's like this family that I didn't know I needed. 
it's giving you that connection with somebody who really understands what you're going through. Exactly, exactly. Because it's like uh, my husband would was always nagging me. You need to eat more. You need to eat. But you know what? We all know we need to eat more when we're going through all that. We can't really force ourselves. I'd get mad at him and say, you have no idea what I'm going through. And then in the next breath, you're thinking, I don't want you to know what I'm going through. You don't want the people you love to know exactly what you're going through because then they'd be going through it. Sure. That's the thing that you then carry over um, with, you know, support groups and peers that are going through it, that they can understand from the inside what, what other people don't. And when we end at the start of every meeting, it's like checkup time. You know, we'll go through whether there are 14 of us that, that month or whether there are 30 of us that month. Each of us says what's happening. Like I'm having scans in two weeks. I have some anxiety, which, by the way, is a real thing anxiety from knowing the scans are coming up. That's the other thing. This group every month has speakers. The last one was all about scansiety and how anxiety with scans is real. Is scansiety a, a big factor for you? Yeah, it never goes away because small cell lung cancer is not curable. But scansiety, you're, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because it doesn't go away. When is it going to start to spread? And that's a lot of pressure to walk around with. Yeah, it is. It is. What do you do? How do you manage that that stress and pressure? Not well. <laughs> not, not very well. I get very crabby. I complain to my husband a lot. I get mad at him all the time, which, you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> so, of course, we needed to ask Maida's husband, John, about his point of view and what it has been like for him to be by Maida's side when things get tough. I guess not being able to really understand what she's going through. I mean, I can't imagine the, the mental aspect of it. What do you do to recharge yourself, you know, managing the stress that you're shouldering? Well, in reality, I don't think I have much stress in, 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 from that standpoint because uh, there's absolutely nothing that I can do to alleviate the problem. As I told my daughters, uh, you can't worry about things over which you have no control. So I just try to uh, do what I can to make you know, whatever uh, we're doing a little bit easier. I, you know, I, I appreciate that philosophy because I think it's probably very productive to think that way. Is there anything that you would suggest to maybe other husbands or spouses or other caregivers that, you know, you think is important for them to know? Well, I think that um, it's important to not make decisions based upon things that you think might happen. Keep in mind that you, you never really know how things are going to go forward. So don't assume the worst, assume the best and move forward from that standpoint. Maida, you and John have such great attitudes and perspectives. And I'm curious, how do you hold on to that kind of energy? Well, I mean, I, I was always pretty energetic. I don't know what helps me. I know that I used to be able to run up and down the stairs. There's like 13 or 14 stairs upstairs and 13 or 14 stairs downstairs. And now it's like I'm at the landing kind of huffing and puffing. I mean, I don't always have much energy. But in the days that maybe your physical energy is a little lower, how's your emotional energy? I mean, do you have times where you really struggle with staying so positive? Oh, God, yeah. What what makes it harder and what makes you get through it? Well, the harder is just waiting for the other shoe to drop when you get close to scans. It's, the harder is, where is it going to move to? You know, am I going to have to have brain radiation or do I want to even do that? Anxiety aside, how do you feel about your journey with SCLC? Well, 
grateful that I have this time, sometimes hopeful. But other times it's like, okay, it's going to spread. So when is it going to spread? So it's a, it's a real seesaw with, with my emotion. I can't tell you that I spend a whole day down or I spend a whole day happy. It's just a seesaw. And I can be fine. And then some thought will hit me and I'm not fine for a while. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be phony here. I, it's easy for me to get down. I'm sure. I've gotten these five great years and I intend to get at least a few more, maybe, you know, a couple more anyway. How vital is the role of the caregiver, all of those different caregivers on your personal journey to get through this? I'm very grateful that I'm not alone. I don't think I would have been able to handle it alone. I don't know anybody who's good at handling something catastrophic like this alone. What my advice to people would be, reach out to someone in your life. Do not be alone. If you don't have family, you might be surprised at which friends will come through for you. And the ones you usually expect to come through don't. The ones that, you know, you kind of mention what's going on and you're hoping they'll come through, they're there for you. Yeah. It's important to note that when it comes to small cell lung cancer, there is hope. Patients like Montessa Lee, Rayanne Lehman, and Maida Mangiamelli are not only living with small cell lung cancer, they're using their voices to inspire change. Their willingness to share their story with others is such a generous form of advocacy. Advocacy can be one of the greatest expressions of caregiving. It can take many forms and anyone can do it. On a personal level, providing support, educating others, sharing information, and working to change health-related stigmas are all ways to advocate and raise awareness for small cell lung cancer. On a legislative level, it's individual stories that often affect change in research, funding, and policy. These caregiver life hacks can enhance the quality of life for those living with lung cancer. If you are a patient living with small cell, ask your doctor about the latest treatments and clinical trials. For up-to-date information about lung cancer and the latest screening guidelines, go to lcfamerica.org. Thank you so much for joining us, and special thanks to all of our guests, our patients, and caregivers for adding their voices and their journeys with small cell lung cancer to our Caregiver Life Hacks podcast series. All of the resources mentioned in this podcast will be in our show notes. I'm Alora Nanos. Take care, and thanks for listening. Caregiver Life Hacks Small Cell Lung Cancer Edition is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. I'm your host, Alora Nanos. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.